If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. Welcome back. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of my life and where in this new era of Trump sanity, when America is sure to be made great again, we view this amazing development with optimism, hope, and skepticism as we enter this post-political correctness, post-truth, political, cultural, and media environment. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Once again, my name is John Ziegler. And if you go to freespeechbroadcasting.com, you can check out the columns that I write for Mediate, one of which this week was about Megyn Kelly's new book, which I've not yet read, but I've seen so many excerpts of and so many interviews done with Megyn Kelly this week that I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what the essence of the book is and and what uh, the important tidbits are to discuss. And this is fascinating on a whole bunch of levels. The column that I wrote deals with the fact that it's obvious, and in fact, Megyn Kelly has admitted, although downplayed this reality, that the Fox News Channel superstar, Megyn Kelly, withheld information, potentially key information, from her audience about both Donald Trump and, this might be more important, the nature of her own network's coverage of him during both the Republican primaries as well as the general election. Now, what are the specifics of what we're talking about? Frankly, we're not 100% sure because it seems to me that Kelly is changing her story ever so slightly depending on what venue that she's in. The New York Times interpreted her book as implying, at the very least implying, that on the day of the first Republican debate, back in the late summer, early fall of 2015, you may recall that this was the most viewed Republican primary debate ever. And I think it set the tone for the entire election. And I I even believe that the first moment of that debate, in retrospect, ended up winning Donald Trump the nomination, or at the very least ensuring it was going to come down to him and one or two other people. 
Because if you recall, he had shot to the top of the polls, but everyone's like, there's no way this is going to last. We don't know what we're going to get here. Is this guy for real? Is this an act? Can he continue the act? So that first debate, all eyes were on him. And in Megyn Kelly's book, she says, at least it was implied, and the New York Times interpreted it to mean, that she got poisoned the day of the debate. Now, she is backed off of that, but she certainly makes it sound as if, at the time, she thought she was poisoned. Now, there was some flu bug going around, but the way she describes it in the excerpts that I've seen does not sound like she suddenly got the flu. She she seems to believe that there was a mysterious person that was hovering around her that was very eager to give her some coffee, and then 15 minutes later, after the coffee, she felt horrible. Now, in a vacuum, this wouldn't be that big of a deal, except for the fact that earlier that week, Trump had threatened her on the phone because she had had a guest on her program on Fox News discussing the fact that Ivana Trump, in their divorce filing, had indicated that Donald Trump had raped her. Now, she recanted that later, and it sounds as if Kelly's coverage of that was really pretty fair to Trump, but Trump was irate. And according to Kelly now, although she never divulged this at the time, Trump literally threatened her. So you have the threat, I believe, on a Monday. I think that the debate was on a Thursday. She gets sick that day under very suspicious circumstances in a way that, by the way, would be very consistent with something Trump's buddy Vladimir Putin might do, but I digress. And then... More substantively, and probably more importantly to how things ended up turning out, but Kelly says that she found out that Trump had complained to the bosses at Fox News Channel because he had learned that Kelly's first question to him at the debate was going to be a very pointed question. Now, this is where things get hazy and where... It's very easy for people to make implications and back off of them when it's not convenient while still leaving an impression. I'm not buying the idea that Trump got a very vague impression that Kelly was going to go after in the first question of the debate, because that makes no sense. Because if you have that kind of inside information, and let's be clear, the way they do these things, Megyn Kelly had a lot of help Lots of people were in the loop on what kind of questions that she was going to ask. So if someone decides to go rogue and warn Donald Trump, they're not just going to give him a vague warning. We're talking this is at the highest levels. Roger Ailes, his buddy, is still running Fox News Channel at this point. So there's no possible way, none, in my view, in the real world, Oxum's razor, if Trump has gotten any information He knows exactly what the question's all about. And do we have any evidence of that? Yeah, we do. Because his answer, I remember at the time being incredibly impressed. Because it's his first question he's ever been asked in a presidential debate. And it was about his abuse of women, verbal abuse of women. And he interrupts Megyn Kelly and says, only Rosie O'Donnell 
And the crowd laughed and cheered. And I think that was the moment in retrospect that effectively, if it didn't win Trump the nomination, it went a long way in winning him the nomination because it diffused the potentially fatal issue. It got the crowd on his side. It showed he's one of us because he's got a common enemy. Everyone hates on the conservative side, Rosie O'Donnell. It was a flat out lie. And Megyn Kelly called him on the lie that it wasn't, that his verbal abuse of women was not just isolated to Rosie O'Donnell, but lying doesn't stop Donald Trump. So, it created the impression he's one of us. It was funny. It got Megyn Kelly off guard. And he was able to move on. And, and, you know, at the time, remember Frank Luntz, the, the pollster who does those bogus focus groups, declared Trump dead. It's over. And I I never believed that at the time. I was like, he showed everybody this campaign is going to be completely different. You ain't seen nothing yet. And at that point, the news media, which was already jumping on the Trump train for the ratings, now they were on the Trump train till the end, till it stopped moving. Because now we know, okay, this wasn't just an act. This thing is for real. This thing is going to be entertaining. This is going to be a circus like nothing we've ever seen before. The first words out of his mouth, are only Rosie O'Donnell? Well, had we known three things <laughs> at the time, had we known that Trump had threatened Megyn Kelly on the phone that week, that Megyn, Ke- Megyn Kelly believed that she was poisoned that night, and that Trump had prior knowledge of at the very least, and again, I've already explained why I don't believe this to be true. It doesn't make sense. But at the very least, he knew. He got a warning. Hey, heads up. Had we known all that at the time, the narrative of that first debate is completely different. And I think history might be radically altered at this moment. And maybe most the most important element of that is we now see the coverage that he got from Fox News Channel in a completely different light. And Kelly said some interesting things about that just today, which I'll discuss when we return on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Welcome back. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network, heard on 24 different radio stations across the soon-to-be great nation again, thanks to Donald Trump. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And some more thoughts on this Megyn Kelly, the Fox News Channel superstar, who uh, came out with a book this week, which has some fascinating revelations, which might have been helpful if they had been provided at the time instead of saved for a book. And I write about this in a column from Mediate, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I realize that cable news is not journalism. It's just showbiz now. But you'd think that some people would at least fake it. And Megyn Kelly's not even faking it. In fact, she's been asked a couple of times very soft, very softly, because this is all a club, right? The news media is all a club. 
So if you're in the club and, you know, you're popular and powerful and Megyn Kelly's in the middle of contract negotiations right now, some people thinking she might get it up to $20 million a year, which I don't believe, but that's that's the rumor out there. Nobody wants to piss you off. So they all meekly ask, well, you know, what do you say to those who might suggest you owed it to your audience to divulge this information back when it mattered. And she actually said, well, you know what? If the Axis Hollywood tape didn't take out Donald Trump, nothing I would have said would have done that. That's not your call, Megyn Kelly. The slogan for Fox News Channel is, we report, you decide. So literally, she didn't abide by that. She kept her mouth shut, one, because she was afraid of Donald Trump, maybe physically afraid of Donald Trump, at least physically afraid of his supporters, and because she wanted to save stuff for a book. So we have these first debate revelations, which I think are incredibly important and would have shed a totally different light on what happened in one of the most critical moments during the entire nominating process. Then there was the feud between Megyn Kelly and Donald Trump, including the she was bleeding out of her wherever. Then they kissed and made up. Then they got back into a fight. Trump boycotted a debate that was hosted by her, which he didn't suffer any consequence for, which I found to be just flat out ridiculous, especially considering he's supposed to be the tough guy. And this was Fox News Channel run by at that time. Roger Ailes, his buddy, who we now know was directing traffic for him and maybe providing him with debate questions. And then Megyn Kelly made up with him again so that she could get Donald Trump as a guest for that primetime special she had on Fox, which turned out to be a editorial and ratings disaster. And then her book comes out. By the way, she says now that she and Trump are on good terms. <laughs> Wait a minute. The guy threatened you. He may have poisoned you. He, he, got, he mocked you. He boycotted your debate. Uh, he, he backed your abuser because in this book, she says that Roger Ailes sexually harassed her on numerous occasions and not in a subtle way. And Trump backed Roger Ailes, his buddy. All of this happened. And now Megyn Kelly's like, yeah, we're, we're cool. It was just the weirdness, she said, of the campaign. In other words, she doesn't want to piss off Trump's audience because it's all about ratings. And money. There is no journalism anymore. I mean, heck, look, look at Megyn Kelly. She's smart. She's good. She's talented. But she's also sexy. I mean, she's the only only person in her position that's ever had, uh, you know, very sexy uh, photos, fashion photos taken of her for a profile on her as a news person. I think it was for Vanity Fair or some magazine like that. This is all just a game. This is all just showbiz. News, journalism, truth has nothing to do with it. And one of the truths, apparently, that she decided to save for her book, she talked about today, ironically, on Fox News Channel, she said, you know, a lot of those pro-Trump hosts who were asking him supposedly tough questions were doing it as part of an act, that it was all set up with Trump beforehand. Now, gee, I wonder who she might have been talking about. I, I wonder if that might have been Sean Hannity. Well, interestingly, Sean Hannity (laughs) tweeted a link to an article. By the way, it happened to be a Mediate article, the uh, organization I work for. 
which had the clip of Megyn Kelly saying this, and dost thou protest too much? Sean Hannity said, I don't know who she's talking about, because whenever I asked Trump questions, I wanted real answers. Well, the reality is we know that Sean Hannity was completely up Trump's backside and that this revelation is completely consistent with what we've seen. In fact, Hannity not only, I'm sure, gave Trump the questions in advance, he practically gave Trump the answers during the debates. I mean, not during the debates, but during his interviews, suggesting to him whenever he was off course what the better conservative answer might be because Trump had no idea because he's a liberal con man. All this would have been really good information to have when we were evaluating how Fox News Channel was not only treating Trump, but the other candidates as well. Lots more to come on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Welcome back. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And understandably lost within the uh, the chaos of the election and its aftermath, shocking result, and all of the incredibly important uh, transition news, has been an anniversary of a news story that has consumed much of my life, if not... <laughs> Most of it, far too much of it, over the last five years. And that is a story I've referred to many times in this program as the so-called Penn State scandal. Five years ago, this November, that story exploded across the media landscape nationally, although it had been percolating locally for several years before it finally really did, like a nuclear bomb, blow up. And the aftermath of that is still going going on today. And for those who are completely unfamiliar with my rather bizarre and completely unforeseen role in that case, I urge you to go to uh, my website, framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. The framing is not literal. It's figurative. It's not a conspiracy website. But the bottom line is that Almost every single thing you think you know or may have remembered, at this point, many people probably don't even remember the basic details other than the fact that they've been told that Jerry Sandusky was the worst pedophile in the history of the world and that Joe Paterno somehow, as head coach at Penn State University's football team, had helped him cover up his crimes. Almost every single thing you've been told about that story is not just a little bit wrong, it's totally wrong. And when I got involved with this, Almost five years ago, I had no idea how wrong everything really was. I figured it was just a little bit wrong. I figured the paterno angle on this just didn't make any sense. It had to be wrong. It was illogical. And it was a story that was very unique, uniquely fashioned for the news media to blow it. And nobody knows how incompetent and and evil and lacking in any real credibility, especially in a story that happens this fast and is this emotional than I do. The news media is not to be trusted on this type of story. And boy, did I get that right. 
because everything I found about the story, and I've investigated it more than literally any other human on the planet, and trust me, it wasn't in my self-interest to do so. I knew it was against my self-interest. In fact, I knew it was devastating to me. In fact, Matt Lauer, the second time I went on the Today Show about this story, in the nicest way possible, declared my career dead on the Today Show because of the stance that I had taken on the entire story, a stance which I believe is based in fact and logic and research and investigation that nobody else bothered to do because this was a story where the news media bought into a conclusion before they had any facts. This wasn't a rush to judgment. It was a flying leap to judgment, and then they perceived everything that happened after that through the prism of what they thought they already knew. But no one had actually ever proven because I'm convinced it didn't happen. Well, a couple weeks ago, I referenced this but never got a chance to talk about it in great detail. I went back to Pennsylvania probably for the last time to witness the testimony of the person who should have been the very first person to testify in the entire case. First person we should have heard from in the entire so-called Penn State scandal was the guy who was the so-called kid in the Mike McQuarrie episode. That was the episode where a former, now former, Penn State assistant, then graduate assistant in the early 2000s, 2001 to be specific, although he got the date, the month, and the year flat wrong when he testified, which I think was critical. Mike McQuarrie claimed to have witnessed a sex act of some sort, though he's never given any definitive details about it, and he only saw anything for a couple seconds, really only witnessed what he heard, slapping sounds. The kid in that episode finally testified after five years. Now he's in his late 20s now, married, former sergeant in the Marine Corps. And if you knew the history of this particular guy who was almost 14 years old at the time of the alleged episode, and I could go through a litany of everything that we know, and this is not just stories. I mean, this is documented situations, everything you could possibly need to know that the relationship between this particular guy well into adulthood, including at his own wedding, where he invited Jerry Sandusky and his wife to come to his wedding and posed in a picture with Jerry Sandusky in his Marine Sergeant's uniform, which Jerry Sandusky made public with his name and his resignation letter from his charity before he ever knew there was ever anything that even existed regarding a Mike McQuarrie episode, makes absolutely positively no sense, especially when you consider that the first statements, and I mean plural statements, that this guy gave to both police and investigators indicated not only that nothing had ever happened that night, but never ever occurred between him and Jerry Sandusky. That he saw Jerry Sandusky as a father figure. In fact, he had him stand in as his father at his senior high school football game two or three years after this episode occurred. And he was definitive about it. He was in great detail about it. So the very first person that should have spoken five years ago was this guy by the name of Alan Myers. And because everything in this case is upside down, Alan Myers was the last person to speak. And so he finally spoke in court. And unfortunately, something very, very major had happened between five years ago when he first spoke out about this to investigators saying nothing ever happened And now, where he said one word when asked the question, were you sexually abused? He said, yes. No details, no nothing. (laughs) I mean, literally, nothing more than one syllable. Yes, something dramatic has happened over that five-year period. 
he got paid $3 million. Penn State paid out $100 million to these accusers. It's amazing what people will say for several million dollars. And so I witnessed the person who was really the last hope for any truth in this case with one syllable able to end that hope and any legitimate path towards there being any justice, any correcting of the narrative of this story for everybody involved. And it's not just Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno. There's still three Penn State administrators that are facing bogus charges five years later that have never gone to trial. There have been lots and lots of other people who have suffered enormous damage to their lives who did nothing wrong. I mean, just this week there was a, a Detroit Lions football player who got praised everywhere in the news media because he said his finest moment of his college career was accidentally breaking Joe Paterno's leg on the sidelines. Got universally praised, almost universally. A couple, couple minor uh, comments from, from some former Penn State players saying, hey, buddy, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. But there's never been a a larger agenda against the truth that I'm aware of in the news media than this case. And I have no love. I I despise Penn State now. I never had any love. I have no connection to the university, no connection to Joe Paterno. I'm just somebody who knows how the news media works and cares about the truth and was willing to put my own self-interest on the line stupidly for a story that I knew years ago had no chance of the truth winning. There was no chance, and I, I kept doing it because I knew no one else would, and I felt it was important enough to try. So that effectively ended a couple weeks ago when this Alan Myers person with one word decided to lie and betray the guy who he admitted on the stand was his father figure for many, many, many years after this alleged incident where I'm convinced Nothing ever happened, and no one ever has backed up Mike McQuarrie. Any of the people he talked to at that time, including his own dad, have ever backed him up. That what he said at the time was consistent with what he said 10 years later after investigators had come to him and, I believe, manipulated him into misremembering something that had occurred because he probably had a very understandable desire to help investigators get the Loch Ness Monster, a guy who they were telling him was this horrible pedophile, was human nature, but it doesn't mean it it was, wasn't was wrong. It doesn't mean that it wasn't inaccurate. It doesn't mean that it didn't create a domino effect of destruction and injustice. And Jerry Sandusky, who I know is the least popular person on the planet, I understand why people who don't know the case feel this way. He got up on the stand after Alan Myers had done what he did, and he got asked one question, one question only by his attorney. He got asked the question, Did you ever sexually abuse Alan Myers? And instantaneously, with tears coming down his cheek and anger in his voice like I've never seen before, Jerry Sandusky responded, Absolutely not! And that was the end of the questioning, and that, in all likelihood, in my view, will probably be, although you never know, especially in this case, be the last words ever heard publicly from Jerry Sandusky. I also happen to believe they were very truthful words that he spoke. The news media, of course, ignored them, despite the emotion surrounding them and despite the factual record, which would make the statement to anyone who knew the full story seem to be obvious. But the news media is not interested in that narrative. And since that time, the judge in this appeal, who was also the judge of the original trial, 
just a couple days ago, he recused himself. And he recused himself in a way that I believe was on purpose to try to delay the, the appeal process as much as possible because Jerry Sandusky is 73 years old and he's in a horrendous situation in prison, basically effectively in solitary confinement. Who knows how much longer he has to live. He looks terrible, although he's hanging in, in there much better than I would have done under the similar circumstances, considering the psychology of what he's dealing with, not to mention the physicality of it. But the idea that he's going to be around for more than a couple more years, especially after what the betrayal he just got from Alan Myers is as a stretch. And now the process is going to be stalled to where there's no hope of a, of an objective judge in the state of Pennsylvania, having the balls to take on the entire media industrial complex and most of the public opinion in the state to do what is actually right. And to have a real trial as opposed to the Salem witch trial, which occurred back in 2012 and which resulted in Sandusky's conviction. So effectively my efforts on that, at least for now are over. Uh, you can find out more about them at framingpaterno.com. I did an interview about the episode that I just described going back to Pennsylvania for that court hearing, which is the top link, uh, or one of the top links, at uh, framingpaterno.com. So if you're interested in the story, I urge you to go there. It's the most amazing story I've ever been involved with. Uh, it's one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my career, and I've done a lot of dumb things in my career, which was to get involved. But I know I did the right thing. I know I found the truth, but I also know that it doesn't matter. Truth no longer matters in this world. If it's not a popular truth, if it's an unpopular truth, you you have no chance. Unless you've got a lot of money behind you. But when you got no money, no popularity, the media against you, and a lot of people whose reputations are on the line to maintain a false narrative, forget about it. That's the world we live in now. Because on Twitter and Facebook... No, no one's going to give you any traction when you got an unpopular truth, which is weird because I've always thought that my truth of this story was should have been very popular. Nobody got sexually abused. You would think that would be a good story to tell. But for some reason, in this particular case, people want to believe it because it makes them feel better about themselves. If they're better people than Joe, Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky, then I guess it makes people feel better about themselves. It certainly makes the media feel better about themselves because... They're a bunch of scumbags, and uh, so anything that makes them feel less of a like much like less of a scumbag is good, especially when it's good for ratings, as this story has been. Uh, when we come back, th there was another story <laughs> that was very similar to Penn State that I also got involved with, which I also have uh, an interesting update on, which we'll do in the final segment on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. This is the final segment of this program. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And about a half hour after this show is over, the podcast for this program will be made available, as are all the podcasts at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I mentioned that uh, at least for the next few years, if not forever, the, the uh, casket on the injustice that is the so-called Penn State scandal has been closed, at least in far, as far as my involvement with it. 
interestingly, there was a, a story that I call the son of the Penn State scandal involving a small high school or mid-sized high school in Ohio, in Steubenville, Ohio, which was referred to as the Steubenville rape case, which got a lot of national publicity. If you're a news junkie, you probably recall that phrase from several years ago. And in a bizarre turn of events, not only was I involved with the Penn State case, having done the only interview Jerry Sandusky's ever done in prison for many, many hours and went on the Today Show twice to discuss my research on the case, as well as many, many other media outlets. As fate would have it, I had written a book about Steubenville High School's football team back in 1993, and the football coach who was the head coach then was still the head coach when the scandal, quote-unquote, broke in uh, 2012 after the whole Penn State thing had occurred, which absolutely, from a narrative standpoint, was why the news media jumped all over this. They saw this as Penn State 2, the little brother of Penn State, even though the cases were very, very different, and in neither case was there a cover-up or a scandal. And uh, as bizarrely as fate would have it, uh, I got involved in trying to help the head football coach there through that situation, which I never thought he was going to survive. After what happened to Joe Paterno, who was a legend, the winningest college football coach in history, I thought there is no shot, even though Reno Sakash, who was the head coach at Steubenville, Big Red High School, who has, I believe, more wins than any current coach in the state of Ohio, if not maybe the country. I mean, he's, he's as well into the 300s as far as wins are concerned in his career. I thought there is no way, even as popular as he is in the city, that he's going to survive this. And I made a couple trips to Steubenville. I actually got the head coach ready to go on the Today Show, which he never did because he got cold feet at the last second. I, I wrote several op-ed pieces for the local newspaper about why this was not a scandal. Long story short, not only did the coach somehow survive, uh, which I never thought was possible and many people very close to the coach never thought was possible, but this past weekend, Steubenville Big Red High School has won their fourth consecutive Ohio Regional Championship since the scandal broke and since the news media tried to destroy this this small former steel town in the Ohio River Valley, which once had 45,000 people, now I believe has a population of about 18,000 people because the steel industry and the coal industry are basically gone. And somehow, some way, despite all this, they've won four straight regional championships, almost came within a whisker of winning the state title last year, which in Ohio is a really, really big deal and almost impossible to do. And this accomplishment is is just remarkable on so many levels. But what I found most interesting was when I went back to Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago, I, I came back through Pittsburgh and stopped in to see Reno Sakash after a playoff victory. And I figured that after that scandal, he was never going to be able to coach, even if he didn't lose his job, because he's highly politically incorrect. And I figured he'd be skating on thin ice and in this super sensitive world where every parent can complain about anything – now they've, they've got Reno by the balls. He's never going to possibly still be able to be Reno, even in a place like Steubenville. And boy, was I wrong. Because I went in the locker room after they won their first playoff game against a, uh, a crosstown rival. And no lie, no exaggeration, in the 30 minutes I was there, I saw at least 10 episodes that would have gotten any other coach fired immediately. None of them should have resulted in firing, but I'm talking about cursing at kids, 
hitting kids hard, which they actually respected and loved, not in a corporal punishment sort of way, but in a, hey, buddy, I'm going to give you a hard one in the gut type of way. Stuff that would have easily, by the way, including black kids he did this to, but stuff that would have been easily misinterpreted and resulted in the firing of just about anybody else in high school athletics that I've ever heard of. So not only has he not changed, I think he's actually gotten more Reno-ish, more bombastic than he's ever been. And in retrospect, I should have realized, boy, Trump has got to win Ohio. Because if there are people in Ohio that are still have the balls to kind of put up with that and eschew political correctness and, and eschew the media, go screw yourself. We know what didn't, didn't happen here. We're going to stick by our guy and let him be him, even if it doesn't look good to the outside world. That's a place where Donald Trump can win. And he ended up kicking Hillary Clinton's ass in Ohio. And I should have seen it because I was there the weekend before the election and I was too dumb to realize it. But it was it felt good to realize that there's still a few places in America where that's possible. And uh, Steubenville, Ohio is, is still one of them. All right, that'll do it for this edition of this program. Uh, I hope to be back next week on Thanksgiving. But stranger things have happened because the show is very much in flux at this point. So hopefully I'll talk to you next uh, weekend. If not, have a great Thanksgiving and uh, good luck because we're all going to need it in this crazy world in which we live. Until the next time you hear me, I'm John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. <laughs>